Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Jesus taught in parables. I think we've kind of established that already, haven't we? Jesus taught in parables, and it is almost certainly true that Jesus taught more parables than are recorded. And it seems likely that um, he reused parables and adapted parables. Uh, for example, um, the parable of the lost sheep. It actually can be found in two places, in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, and it's the same parable. However, even though the story is the same, the two contexts in which it's found are completely different. And so the same story, the same parable, is actually not the same parable. It's a different parable because it has two quite different meanings in each place. And some parables, they, they look similar, and we think they might be the same parable, such as the parable of the talents in Matthew's gospel and the parable of the pounds or the miners in Luke's gospel. I mean, they're remarkably similar. Both involve a rich man who distributes wealth to his servants before going away on a journey and then he returns and then there's an accounting. And they look very similar, but on closer examination, actually they're not the same parable at all. They're similar, but actually they're different scenarios told in different contexts with two quite different meanings. Likewise, there's the, the parable of the, the marriage feast in, in Matthew's Gospel and the parable of the great feast in Luke's Gospel. Similar stories, but different parables. Well, this week we concentrate on an exception. One parable that is found in three different places, and it is the same parable, the parable of the tenants. And uh, this morning, Yvonne read to us uh, Luke's version of that parable, but it's also found in Matthew and Mark. And the details change slightly between the retellings. However, in all three Gospels, the context in which the parable is given is the same context. It is Passion Week. Jesus is three days away from being crucified. He's teaching in the temple. The leadership of the religious establishment in Jerusalem have challenged him, and the parable of the talents, sorry, the parable of the tenants is part of his answer. And the story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the story is essentially the same. A landowner plants a vineyard and he departs, leaving the vineyard to others, to tenants. At harvest time, he sends servants to collect the rent, which is his share of the fruit. But the servants are rejected, rudely, unjustly, even violently. The landowner sends more servants, and there is an escalation of atrocities, ending in Matthew and Mark's telling of the parable, in multiple deaths. Then the landowner decides to send his beloved son. In all three versions, the reasoning is the same. The tenants surely will respect the son. But actually, they kill him. How will this story finish? There's only one way it can finish. The owner of the vineyard will come, kill those tenants, and replace them with different tenants. And in every rendition, Jesus ends by quoting Psalm 118. Each of the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tells how immediately the, the, the instant reaction was the chief priests and the teachers of the law understood that this parable had been told against them, and they, they instantly seek a way to arrest him straight away, but they could not because they were afraid of the crowd's reaction if they did arrest him. Well, 
So it's the same parable found in three different places. How are we going to understand it? Well, let's begin by thinking about some cultural information. In general terms, the first thing to understand is that in general terms, the scenario depicted would be instantly recognizable to a first century audience. An absentee landlord, tensions between tenants and owner, repeated sending of emissaries, as well as mistreatment and rejection. This kind of stuff actually happened all the time. Now, we might remember that there are law courts, but there's no police force as such. Might often did turn out to be right. And possession was nine-tenths of the law, so to speak. And the tenants, they're not seeking legal ownership of the land. They are seeking possession of it by force, something that in the ancient world they may well have gotten away with completely, especially if the landowner lived a very long way away away, and the tenants figured that their collective strength was greater than his collective strength. A question that sometimes occurs to us as modern readers is, is this story realistic? Would a man really have repeatedly sent servants if these servants were being beaten, mistreated, dishonored, treated shamefully, and even, as Matthew and Mark's accounts have it, killed? And would a man, on the basis of such an appalling track record, send in his one and only son? Well, the answer to that question is... It's realistic enough. It's realistic enough for a parable. Um, now, on the one hand, the ancient world was full of stories of ambassadors and emissaries being mistreated by the people that they were sent to. These kind of scandal stories, they, they flourished and, and, and were repeated uh, um, endlessly. Especially, perhaps, if the, if the recipients of the messengers thought that, that you wanted to start a war or that you were sending spies. And precisely, that happened to King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 10, he, he sends some messengers to offer condolence on, to a king on the death of his father. That king believes that they're spies and he sends them back, having treated them very, very shamefully, having dishonored them and in doing so, having dishonored King David. And that starts a war. That's a story about emissaries, messengers, ambassadors being mistreated. As for the, the son, the son of the landlord, would he really have sent his son? Well, that aspect of the story depends upon the enormous symbolic authority that sons had in the ancient world, particularly in the ancient Near East, their authority to represent their fathers. You see, a servant can transport goods or a message, but the son comes with the full legal authority of his father and can make binding decisions and legal decisions on his father's behalf. So it's actually quite a different thing. He comes with full authority. The statement, they will respect my son, would have had a lot of currency in the ancient Near East. I mean, to, to kill the servants, to mistreat them, that, that was to damage the, land, the landowner's property. But to kill the son is to murder the landowner vicariously, so to speak. The, um, <clears throat> the Jewish historian Josephus, writing at the end of the first century and writing about the Roman siege of Jerusalem, the siege of Jerusalem, at which Jerusalem was destroyed, AD 70, some 40 years after Jesus gave this parable. Well, Josephus, writing about it, he talks about how the Romans used catapults 
to launch huge boulders over the city walls into the city and they destroyed and so on and so forth. Scenes from Lord of the Rings spring to mind uh, for me. Um, um, That's how I picture it. But they used these catapults to launch boulders and watchmen were posted on the towers and they gave warning whenever one of these machines launched its boulder and the boulder flew into the air. uh, The warning cry in Aramaic was, The sun is coming! The sun is coming! That sun as in S-O-N, not sun as in sun and moon. Um, And when they heard this cry, the sun is coming, the sun is coming, they all took cover. And that, as a warning cry, the sun is coming, that might sound strange to our ears, but it illustrates the representative authority of suns. The, The stone is the son of Caesar. And he comes to do Caesar's business, which is reckoning. The sun is coming. The sun is coming. So then, with respect to how this story is told across all three Gospels, with multiple deaths and beatings, particularly as Matthew and Mark record it, um, there may be aspects uh, to the story that are exaggerated, but that's not unusual for a parable. Lots of parables have exaggerated aspects. Next week we're going to have a we're going to look at a parable which has. Um, an absurd amount of money mentioned, a, a, a totally fantastic amount of money. Um, it's an exaggerated element in that parable. Um, parables do sometimes contain exaggerated elements, but the conclusion stands that culturally, what Jesus is describing is a familiar scenario to Christ's audience and instantly recognizable. So that's some cultural background. Scriptural background... Well, as we saw last week, we've kind of already covered this. The Old Testament prophets regularly use the image of a landowner and his vineyard to say things about God's relationship with his people and his desire that they might bear fruit and the consequences of any refusal to bear fruit, the fruit that was desired. Well, when we bring these cultural and scriptural elements together, it is plain, and it's plain from the reading, that Christ's audience knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. And Jesus asks them a question, verse 15. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? In Luke's version, Jesus answers that question himself. In Matthew and Mark's version, the audience respond, He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Unbelievable, unimaginable. Worse than anything else we could possibly imagine. Because what they've heard Jesus saying analogically is God is abandoning you, the nation of Israel. You will no longer be God's people. Judgment will fall on it. And he will start again with a different set of people. In in Matthew's gospel, Jesus concludes with, Therefore I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the Gentiles, who will produce its fruit. And according to all three versions, it is especially the leaders, the chief priests, scribes, teachers of the law, who understand that this parable has been spoken against them. What they will have heard Jesus saying to them, analogically, is God has weighed your ministry in the balance and found it wanting. So these messengers, these, these messages... God is abandoning his people. And you leaders, God is turning his hand against you. 
Um, these are very shocking things to say. Uh, in fact, these words are so startling that a good number of academics find it impossible to believe that Jesus actually said these words. I think it's obvious and safe to assume that Jesus said these words. Of course he said these words. They're, they're just, they're, as academics, they're just coming to the realization that this is not the kind of thing you could say in the temple ever and expect to survive. I'm not sure you'd make it out alive if you said these words today in front of the Wailing Wall with, with, with the, 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 the um, Dome Rock Mosque in front of you and the Wailing Wall immediately in front of you and the Jewish quarter behind you. I'm, if you made the same message, I I'm I'm, don't think you'd make it out alive. It's such an extraordinary thing to say. Why did Jesus say it? Well, he said it because it's true. For centuries, through the prophets and in these last days now through the Son, God had repeatedly warned his people as to what it would mean to take his name in vain, which is to say perhaps what we might call nominalism, is, is, to, actually, is, is, is to label yourself as belonging to the people of God and say that you're a person of God, but actually live according to the standards of the world, or even worse. Uh, look with me at the, t if you like, um, just flip back a, pa uh, a chapter, uh, chapter 19 of Luke's Gospel, page 853, 853, beginning at verse 41, chapter 19, verse 41. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The parable, therefore, was exceptionally clear to Christ's original audience on that day. They knew exactly what he was saying. What does it say to us? Well, I think uh, we need to think about three things it says to us. It says something about Jesus. It says something about what we're like. And it says something about the times that we're living in now. So let's think about those things. I, I think we should start by understanding that this parable says a lot about Jesus. In actual fact, this parable says perhaps more about Jesus than it does about Israel. Um, in the parable, the servants are, are like the prophets of the Old Testament. Um, it's not to say that the servants stand for the prophets, as in an allegory, because the correspondence is not a close one. The prophets weren't sent to collect anything, but there is an analogical similarity. The prophets came for centuries to remind God's people in God's land of God's law in order that they might bear God's fruit. In contrast, uh, in the parable, the, the son of the landowner, he comes as the beloved son or, or the one and only son. Now, when Christ's audience would have heard this, scripturally, they would have thought of lots of different Old Testament passages. Talk of one and only son would have reminded them of Isaac. And the day when Isaac nearly got his throat cut by his dad, Isaac being Abraham's one and only son. Was he his one and only son? No, Abraham had many sons, beginning with Ishmael, who was the eldest, and many sons after Isaac. But Isaac was the one and only son insofar as he was the son of the promise. 
he got the promises of God. And those promises were passed down through Isaac. It also would have reminded them of, of, of so much of what Isaiah had said, the servant songs, where Isaiah had prophesied about the one coming, the Messiah, who would save Israel, but who would also suffer rejection and many other things, and uh, as a one and only son, make atonement for the sins of Israel. And this, this one and only son would have reminded them of the Psalms, say Psalm 2 or Psalm 89, where to be the son of God and to call God Father is to be the anointed king of Israel, to be the son of David. That's what it means. So, sun language, rich in resonance, but Jesus quotes from none of that material. Instead, he quotes from Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, as the psalmist is praying this, as, as we prayed this this morning, it's about us, it's about the psalmist, it's about the person praying. And what is it about? Well, it's about, it's about rejoicing in God's continuing habit of taking the lowly and the despised and the hard-pressed and raising them up while humbling the proud and the arrogant. But Jesus gives it a new meaning. And in this new meaning, he, he, he borrows thoughts from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah said, uh, with respect to God, he said, He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. And in Isaiah 28, Isaiah says, um, So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. And Jesus, two places in Isaiah, one place in, in Psalm 118, Jesus brings these elements together and, and, and says this of the cornerstone, verse 18. Every one of those, every one of those who fall on this stone will be shattered. But anyone upon whom it might ever fall, he will be crushed. And he's talking about himself. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the key element in God's building. Take him out, the whole structure falls. He was rejected by the builders, but chosen by God. And exalted by God, he becomes an active agent of judgment. And all of humanity is included in this. Those who come to Jesus are shattered. They are taken apart in order to, that they might be put back together again. They lose their lives, but find them, and so are saved. But those who reject him, he falls on them and they are crushed. To reject Jesus is to choose destruction. So, so we need to sit and listen and hear what this parable is telling us about Jesus. What this parable is telling us about Jesus is that every single human being has to come to terms with Jesus because every human being is going to meet Jesus. Better to fall on him than to have him fall on you. Better to be shattered than crushed. At least this guy can put you back together again the right way. We all have to deal with him. So if you haven't dealt with him, choose today. 
And no one who puts his or her trust in him will ever by any means ever be ashamed. They will never be stricken with panic. He is a rock that does not move. So, so this parable tells us a lot about Jesus. This is the first thing. The second thing is that this parable confronts us with something within all of us and something that is in our contemporary language called the sense of entitlement. And it's the sense of entitlement fostered by possession. And Phil possessed his dad's shirt for a while and gave it back stained. Um, but it's called in Scripture, sometimes it's called arrogance or boasting. Um, sense of entitlement. I had a friend once who um, knew a very, very famous uh, professor of economics who himself moved all around the world um, trying to fix up economic and financial scandals and economic catastrophes in nations and in businesses. And one of the things he said to my friend who said to me is that every single financial scandal he had ever encountered began with a sense of entitlement. A sense of entitlement is obvious in children. As a child, if I borrowed a toy from my older brother and if it was in my possession for long enough, I considered it mine. The first two words that every child needs to know are no and mine. Sometime later they can learn mummy and daddy. But no and mine are fundamental words. I pulled this stunt as a teenager too, regularly, again with my older brother and his cool clothes, the ones at least that I coveted, I took on permanent loan. Um, uh, ownership was, you know, possession was, was ten, yeah, nine-tenths of the law or whatever. Um, still to this day, the distinction sometimes eludes me. I have books in my office that were lent to me, and if a DVD or a book is lent to me for long enough and I've held it in my hands for long enough, it kind of is mine now. So please, if you lend me a book or a DVD, write your name in it. And write at home that you've lent it to me. And, and Rowan, you lent me a book five years ago on marriage. I really must give it back to you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, sense of entitlement. Well, we, I think we need to be not too hasty to judge these tenants. I mean, we're appalled by them, but actually they're us. We're the same as them. Um, and we need to take, I think, a few moments to recognize what they would have been through. They're the ones who've done the hard work and they've lived on site. And no vineyard bears fruit in its first four or five years. So they've probably been working hard for five or six years before the first servant turned up, demanding the landlord's share of the harvest. Now, the demand was just, but it, easy, it is easy to recognize that it would have felt unjust the tenants would have developed, well and truly, a sense of entitlement based upon possession. We need to guard ourselves against this error in every corner and aspect of our lives. Um, just thinking about possibly some applications for us, well, this building's very dear to me, and I know it's very dear to many of you. As a community, in the last uh, 25 years or so, we've worked extremely hard and given very generously to continuously maintain it and improve it. And indeed, that is the right thing to do. But you know what? It is now. It never has been and it never will be. 
It is private property we're sitting in at the moment, and it belongs to a group called the Diocesan Trustees. And they have every right to ask us to vacate this property, indeed, actually, at their whim, should they choose to redevelop it, turn it into flats or a shopping mall. If that ever happened, wouldn't that feel unjust? But it's not ours. It's theirs. So too also with not just the church buildings, but the church itself, the people of God who gather in this place or gather in this city. Um, And again, this is a community we've worked hard, extremely hard, and generously given to continuously maintain and improve and support and indeed build it, the Church of Jesus Christ in this parish, in this city. And that's the right thing to do. But it isn't ours, and it never has been. It's private property. It belongs to Jesus of Nazareth. This church is not my church, and this church is not your church belongs to Jesus. Paul says uh, to the Gentile converts in Rome, don't allow a sense of entitlement to get a grip on your heart. Sure, the native branches were broken off so that you might be grafted in, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut out. How do we continue? We continue in God's kindness. We continue in God's kindness, understanding that it's by grace, understanding that it's by holding on to Jesus. Holding on to Jesus, if we abide in Jesus, we will bear much fruit. That's Christ's promise to us. We will bear fruit as long as we just keep on holding on to Jesus. So the parable, secondly, tells us something about ourselves. This sense of entitlement that springs from sin, um, but but can so easily lead to corruption. Lastly, this parable helps us to understand the times in which we live. Um, With Jesus, the kingdom of God stopped being a nation on earth that you could go and visit. With Jesus, the kingdom of God breaks in as something entirely different, entirely new. Wherever God's saving work is manifest through the proclamation of the gospel, there the kingdom is in power. The church is not the kingdom but the church is one manifestation of the kingdom. Israel is not a nation, but rather Israel is, as she has always been, Israel in Christ. All those everywhere of of every nation and ethnicity and of all time, all those who put their faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as revealed fully and faithfully through the Son, Jesus of Nazareth. As Paul puts it, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, 
So they too now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? We don't own this stuff. It all belongs to God. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.